It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race in association with the lovely people at Unibet Poker. I'm David Lappin alongside Dara O'Carney, who after a triumphant month really is the Dara O'Carney of poker. This week we are talking to high stakes cash game beast and Sulphur Y Academy creator Matt Berkey. We will welcome back one of our favourite guests, Tom Jabberkata Hall, on the heels of his DTD Millions final table. Speaking of which, Dara will be taking us through a very interesting hand from close to the bubble as he was making his way to the DTD Millions final table. He will be catching us up on all the news and results from over the break. But first... Unibetter coming to Dublin. Well, this year, Unibet Poker are the proud sponsors of the International Poker Open, historically the biggest small buy-in event on the Irish calendar. The festival will take place between the 25th and 30th of this month in the newly renovated Bonington Hotel in Dublin. And like years gone by, the main event is sure to be a highlight on the Irish poker calendar. To chat more about this year's IPO and also about the Unibet Open Dublin in the same venue at the end of November is tournament organiser, tournament director and Kay Holdham creator Nick O'Hara. Nick, welcome back to the show. Hi guys, how are you? Great to be back. Hi Nick. Well, first things first, Nick, the IPO. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this event? Sure. We've had 10 IPOs already, and this is going to be the 11th IPO. As you're probably aware, the IPO began in the RDS 11 years ago, with Mermaid Poker being the main sponsor at that time, and it's just been grown from strength to strength ever since. Typically, the IPO gets about a thousand players with kind of 250, 260,000 euros prize money. And it's one of those events that, like, people call me and they say, I haven't missed an IPO and I'm not going to miss this year. I'll see you there. And I also get a lot of people who say they only play one event in the year. They don't play any other poker event all year, but they won't miss an IPO. So I think it's one of those events that's just deeply embedded in the Irish poker calendar. It's an institution all to itself at this stage. So can't wait. We're looking forward to another thousand player event, hopefully. Yeah, you mentioned the very first IPO there in Ballsbridge, and that that was actually the very first uh, live tournament I played outside the Fitz. So it was the first sort of multi-day tournament that I played, and I remember it clearly. It's actually the first multi-day tournament I played as well. I played that very first IPO in the RDS. <laughs> And aside from the huge main event, uh, the IPO is also famous for its massive schedule. Am I right in saying there are tournaments starting every few hours over the festival? Yeah, I mean, I think the nature of these big poker festivals has changed. Certainly in Ireland, a lot of the big poker festivals, you know, they've got a, a main event with a 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E, and so on. And, you know, the wheels have fallen off all the other side events. And there was always, you know, three or four trophy winners per day and this type of thing. And that's kind of, you know, something that's disappearing on a lot of Irish poker events. So with the IPO, I mean, just to keep up with the times, we do have 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D. But we also try to keep all the other tournaments on the schedule. So there's a total of 16 events on this year's schedule. It obviously gathers more momentum as we get into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Like Sunday has seven side events. So looking forward to a lot of trophy winners. Actually, I picked up all the trophies the other day um, and a nice glass cabinet to put them all in so they'll be on display for the whole event. Um, looking forward to a lot of trophy winners this year. Yeah, I remember I actually won a couple of trophies one year, not for playing, I hasten to, add, but there was like an Irish Poker Awards going on in conjunction oh, yeah. with the FPO that year. And uh, is this being set up as a needle against me there? <laughs> yeah, the, the five best blogs in, in Ireland were nominated. Um, and I was lucky enough to win. David was very grumpy because he wasn't even nominated. 
But then I also won something called like best social media user of the year. And Channing gave me both awards and he was giving me the second award. He said, these are more or less the same awards. I don't know why you're getting the second trophy. But yeah, that was that, that was good times. <laughs> well, I hate to cut across your very thin brag there, Dara, but uh, I'm going to have to keep going with this interview. Nick, I know when you were presented with the opportunity to partner up with Unibet for this event, the new Unibet head of poker, Christopher Berkfell, and our events manager, Natalie Sopaku Peru, were both very keen. What made you keen on Unibet poker? I just love the Unibet ethos. I love the way they value the player's experience and the actual player themselves. And it's fantastic for this year's IPO to be able to spill that into the event. The online client is a fantastic client. We've had great numbers on the online satellites and great feedback from the players about the Unibet client. So I just delighted to have such a partner like Unibet behind the IPO, just what they can bring to the table in terms of player experience and customer loyalty. Well, this episode has wiped its feet now, Dara, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also great for Unibet to come right in with something like the IPO because obviously Unibet has only recently come back into the Irish market. Um, and yeah. You know everything we can do to get across the message about what a great place Unibet is to play the better. You mentioned the satellites there, and I was actually chatting to some people who were playing the satellites last night, and there was a lot of excitement. One of my friends, Summer, was actually thrilled. She won a seat last night, so she'll be coming. Oh, over. brilliant! And David mentioned at the top that your partnership with Unibet goes beyond the IPO this year. Could you tell us about the next Unibet Open, which is going to be held in Dublin? Yeah, it's fantastic to have the eleven hundred euro Unibet Open coming to Dublin. It, this is brilliant for the. Irish poker players, it's brilliant for the industry. And um, it's seven years since the Unibet Open was in Dublin, if you remember back in City West. And I worked that event and it was one of my first major events to work on. And I was really blown away by the whole setup. And from there, I went on to work on a lot of other international events. But it's brilliant now to be a partner on such a fantastic event, having it here in Dublin on, on the doorstep floor our regular players. We're expecting in the region of about 400 players, which would be fantastic. And just to be able to bring that Unibet customer service to the players, that fantastic player-valued experience, the Unibet open party, and the whole buzz of the big live Unibet events. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait for this winter in Dublin now. It gives me an excuse to get home for a few visits. Finally, Nick, to return to the IPO, as anyone who has been at it over the years will testify, it is as much about socialising and having a great weekend as it is about poker. I've got to ask you now about the famous, or perhaps maybe it's better to call it infamous, bookshop pong contest taking place on the Saturday night. Uh, This (laughs) is the brainchild of our good friend, Irish poker player and recent EBT final tablist, Mark Buckley, who I know loves to induce a bit of madness in the bar. Can you first tell us what Bookshop Pong is and secondly, what this unusual side event will entail? Okay, well, where it all came from was we did have, we do an Irish poker series trip to tip each year. And we had the beer pong down there on the first year. And to be honest, in the one just gone, we looked at it and it wasn't in the budget to put it on again. And Mark Buckley and Vinton Gavin, who won it the previous year, were very disappointed that it wasn't going ahead. And Mark said, look, if you put it on, I'll sponsor it. I said, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so he said, look, there's one stipulation. He said, it has to be called Bookshop Pong and it's got to be shots instead of beer. So I said, Mark, oh, God. <laughs> you can't give every pair 10 blue aftershocks. That's not going to happen. So we, we eventually <laughs> agreed on half beer and half shots. So Bookshop Pong is coming to the IPO in the form of we're going to have a players party on the Saturday night. 
We have a DJ organized. There's a dance floor coming in. We've got the beer pong tables ready to go. And it is going to be the bookshop pong. So it's half beer, half shots. It's free entry for teams of two. And first prize is going to be 350 euros. And second prize is going to be 150 euros. And the players don't have to pay. So it's just come in, have a good time. Well, they have to pay in a different way, Nick. They have to pay with the next morning. You do have to pay the next morning. And the next morning is our most important day too. <laughs> but the venue have promised me that they're going to have a really good coffee machine. So you can be <laughs> on their cappuccinos, lattes and so on early on Sunday morning for day two. Well, that sounds like absolute carnage. Nick, on behalf of Darren, I thank you so much for joining us. We're both looking forward to this pair of fantastic festivals. Brilliant. We'll see you there. Good luck on the felt. We're joined now by one of our absolutely favourite guests. He gave us a brilliant interview back in season five. I strongly recommend checking out that interview right after this episode if you haven't heard it already. Thanks to his recent fourth place finish at DTD Millions in Nottingham on a final table that included our very own Darrow Kearney. He has now crossed the $3 million mark for live caches and has climbed to 40th on the all-time England live money list. Better known to many as Jabricada, such has been his terrorising online career, he is, of course, Tom Hall. Tom, welcome back to the show. Yeah, nice to be back. Well, Tom, a few months ago, I can't remember who started it, but I do remember a Twitter thread in which people were asked who they thought was the elite player who had run the worst live. Your name was mentioned by a few people. Do you feel like this result at DTD has done anything to bring you closer to EV in the live arena? Yeah, Probably. I'm probably a lot closer to EV or over EV. I don't know. As soon as you start actually winning and going close to the EV line or over it, you stop worrying about it. You know, you try to leave <laughs> stuff from your head. Oh, I'll just run good forever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you used to be a dealer in DTD, so there was something fitting about it being the location of your biggest ever live result. We like to joke about having to go to Nottingham. I remember David blogging about how being sent to Nottingham was the poker equivalent of being sent to Coventry. You're from <laughs> Shrewsbury, not that far from Nottingham. How would you defend the Midlands yeah. of England? How would I defend Nottingham? I don't know how much I'd defend Nottingham specifically. <laughs> but, uh... The more hesitation, the better for this one, because I'm going to leave it all in. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Midlands is a bloody nice place. It is quite tame and boring, you might say. But it just depends what you like. When I come home from a city and come back to my hometown, it's a lot nicer. Like, just peace and quiet and greenery, I guess. I don't know. Greenery specifically, Tom? Uh, you're going to have to be more specific, I think. Not, no, I mean, I mean, not that type of greenery. <laughs> As, but I definitely can't defend Nottingham. I mean, it's not the nicest of places, but we all love DTD. I think it's very clearly the best poker venue in the UK. Oh, look at you saying all the right things. Well, look, looking at that final table, a key moment that stands out, I think most people who watched it will agree with this one, was that perfect storm moment when Fox and flattered your ace-king shove with his queens, but then folded to Jonas's shove, who also had ace-king. Uh, had he called there, you were out in eighth place, and I think Dara would have scrambled up another ladder rung. I wasn't a fan of Fox's flat fold, to be honest. I thought queens might have been the worst hand he should flatten, then call it off. What do you think in retrospect? I haven't watched it back, that exact hand, yet. But I remember going over to the rail and discussing, and it seemed like it might be a call. Like, the tournament's still pretty top-heavy, and there's eight left. I mean, you're risking, like, infinite equity, but the chip leader shouldn't ever have really have aces. He's only going to have kings when he shoves, especially with that timing, I think. 
to have you beat. That's interesting. And usually he's going to have a lot of ace kings as well. Is it worth it? Like to call? I don't really know. You know, these spots are really ugly. Like if you've got like a lot of big blinds and room, then I don't mind folding. But I still don't know what's right. I need to watch it back. My own progress to the tournament was I actually had one of the easiest first days I ever had. I just remember bagging up almost 3 million and having no big pots and no major setbacks during the day. But then I had a tough day two where I went back to 2 million, tough day three, and I was kind of short from all the way out, like 80 left or so. You seem to be swinging more. Could you describe what your progress to the tournament was like? So first bullet went down the drain pretty quick. Second bullet, after day two, I just had 10 million chips. So... I felt good after at that point because not even just being one of the chip leaders or whatever, just having enough big blinds to feel comfortable. I didn't really try to like push it too hard on day three, just try and survive. Like you've got to really remember the long-term value in these tournaments. A day is a day, you know, a day is only 20% of the tournament. Anyway, day three was more of a survival game, I would say. Day four, I don't know, I came into the final table pretty short. So it was more choppy. It was never really that smooth, mm. I would say. Day three was kind of smooth, but in general, it was kind of a wild ride. Yeah. A big pot for you on day, whatever it was, I completely lost track of the days, but uh, it was when you knocked out Chrissy Bicknell. Yeah, she decided to play 8-3 offsuit very aggressively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but her and Alex, it's like if they have a decision in any spot ever between aggression and not being aggressive they just always take the aggressive side the problem is with that strategy this is a main event and your stack is worth infinite and you don't want to blow it pots you think back to like a point when you had like 25 million chips or something and you might have busted out in 25th place and then you look at the final table and there's guys with like 30 million chips and you remember like you don't need to have a big stack to be there at the end you've just got to be alive yeah, no, absolutely. I know what you're saying. Well, it would be remiss of me not to mention the fact that we all spent years grinding the satellite leaderboards in days gone by. It's fair to say that the online sats have dried up over the last few years. But before we continue the chat, maybe about your final table and, and how that kind of all went down, it appears now that sort of satellites are back with the vengeance between the Unibet Open Dublin IPO Deep Stacks and the UK Tour. Unibet have a satellite on almost every night of the week. Obviously, a lot of our competitors do as well. What's the plan here, do you think, Dara and Tom? Uh, should we be making hay while the sun is shining right now? Yeah, I think the satellites have, have obviously come back to some degree. I guess their original decline was a lot to do with stars and their policy change. Yeah. But I still think they're, they're kind of different now because when I started grinding satellites, uh, they were sort of snubbed by the better regs and you didn't get that many good regs playing satellites. Apart from specialists like ourselves, most regs seem to stay away from them. Now when you play the bigger satellites, for sure, you do see far more of the top regs playing them. I mean, some of them don't play them necessarily 100% optimally because they're coming from MTTs and it's a different mindset. But it's definitely good to see satellites back because... It's it's good for recreational players. It's a good way to get recreational players in. They want to qualify for some tournament. And it's also good for guys like us. It's a very low variance way to grind out a living. Yeah. To become a good player now, I think people are using a lot more of other people's information. And that isn't out there for satellites at all. Right now, everyone's just as dumb as they were a few years ago, really. Like, <laughs> it's really crazy, the stuff you see all the time in these games. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a $20 buy-in or a $500 buy-in. You see some just clear mistakes. It doesn't take much logic to work out that you need to fold everything in some spots, you know. 
Yeah, I think you make a good point there, Tom. And also, I love the way you phrase it that these days people rely on information that's already out there yeah. rather than maybe necessarily using their own brains. Maybe satellites is an area that is under-researched. Definitely. There isn't really much data out there. You can't go and watch a Run It Once video or whatever. You just have to practice. And you have to have the discipline to be able to make these folds too. It's not just about knowing the correct strategy. It's implementing it. And it's not easy. Even now, it's a really fine balance. You find yourself deep in these satellites where you make these shoves, and just run into king's races or whatever and regret it instantly. There's a lot of spots where you're just risking unlimited big blinds for like a small amount of profit, but it's it's more about the future, you know? Kind of related to that area, Jonathan Little made a kind of a provocative tweet recently where he suggested that people who are good at satellites are not good at actual tournaments themselves. Well, Jonathan Little can go fuck himself, man. Because <laughs> that's some bullshit. Like, that's some total fucking bullshit. I'm fucking sick of that shit, to be honest. Like, I'm sick of hearing that GTO is the only way, you know? Like, people haven't been so successful throughout their lifetimes just by reading a fucking system. Yeah, yeah, that, that's some bullshit, that tweet. Well, when I busted at the weekend, I went around, obviously, to shake hands with everybody before I left. When I got to you, I, I was very surprised to find myself hugging you just spontaneously on the spot. Because I was genuinely rooting for you, and there, and there was clearly a lot of love for you in the room, even though you're not the yeah. kind of guy who sort of, like whores himself out on on social media like myself and david do (laughs) it was also lovely to see your parents on the rail and jack salter was there with them the whole day explaining the action what did it mean for you to have them there and the general level of support you got uh the main reason i wanted to win wasn't because of the million pounds it's because of the amount of support i had and i wanted to bring everyone in at the end you know like dtd is my home club effectively and it would have been just a crazy experience not even poker wise to, to spread the love around the room, you know? I wanted to share that experience with everyone. A million pounds is crazy money, but it's not going to change who I am, I don't, I don't think. But the experience of being around all those people and, you know, you just, like you said, you just feel the love, don't you? You know when, like, people are rooting for you. When I finished, like, 11th last year, I was having similar thoughts. So, yeah, it kind of brought those back, I guess, the feelings of um, community. And, you know, my parents being there, I know they always support me anyway. And it's, it's, it's really nice for them to be there. Like the night before when I was thinking about potentially winning and then being there, it was really honestly a bit too much to take. So you mentioned all the love you felt and that lovely intangible feeling of love all around you. Well, before we go, I got to say that the most famous part of your interview with us from before was your famous rant about the things and the people that bothered you the most in poker. Is there anything you'd like to get off your chest before we go? It's a lot easier to be negative about things. I think people know that, like, I'm a bit of a hippie and I love almost everyone. Anyone who's in the community, staff at DTD, I used to work there. I have a special place for them. You know, I, I would have loved to do the old shout out after the victory to anyone and everyone because it would be a big old list of people. Um, let me try and focus in on hatred. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. There's one thing that I hate. It's people that, I mean, Alex is a big person, someone who does this a lot. He's just staring constantly, <laughs> staring constantly. <laughs> you know, you watch the footage back. You're looking down at 10-3 offsuit in the big blind. You put your cards down and then you turn your head and stare at them. Like, come on. Like, just fucking. <laughs> it's not really as much a fun environment as it used to be, is it? Like, it's much more cold and clinical now. I didn't get into poker because I watched it on TV. And I mean, I used to watch high stakes poker and stuff, and that definitely helped drag me in a bit. But when I used to watch poker when I was, I don't know, 23, 
just interesting to see all these characters. I think we need to inject some more fun back in a bit. You know, like, if you really think you're gaining something, then you can't just do it constantly because it loses its effect as well. You know, like, Timex started all this bollocks when he was doing his eagle stairs in 2014 or whatever. And now not many people are actually doing that. But when people do do it, it's fucking unbearable. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> well, Tom, I'm really glad we found something because I think the interview would have been uh, missing a piece if, uh, yeah. if we hadn't found something that you hated. But I've got to say, a much more mellow and considerably wealthier Tom Hall. Thank you so much for being back on the chip race. We've really enjoyed it. And congratulations to both of you on your fabulous results. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, you feel the love. And I know who's like on my side and who's not. Who are the log type supporters? Who are the grinders who've been there? And you know, always have love for Dara. Just, just Dara. Uh, well, yeah. Just Dara. Yeah, just Dara. <laughs> you know, me and Laughing. What have we? What have we done together, mate? Uh, you, you lost it from me when you left that trophy on the bench or whatever you did. There you go. Uh, that was the final straw. Talking about things that make me angry. <laughs> we'll have to save that for the next episode. Tom, yeah. thanks a million, man. I really appreciate it. Alright guys. Thanks Tom. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. We are back after hiatus. Did you guys miss me? It's been nice having a break from talking to Lappin every Monday, but it is also nice to be back doing the news. We did just get back from the Unibet UK tour in Brighton, which saw noble efforts from our two ambassadors, Diva Byrne and David van der Heiden, who finished 7th and 11th respectively. Well done and commiserations in equal measure. I'm sure our ambassadors were hungry for the trophy. But in this instance, that honour was to fall to Mike Tucknut. He won himself £14,400 for his 220 buy-in. Not only that, but all of the UK tours have two Unibet Open packages added to them. One goes to the longest lasting online qualifier and the other goes to the winner. So we will see Mike at the Unibet Open in Dublin. Congratulations again. Yeah, great effort there from the two ambassadors and Mike, as you mentioned. Uh, i got to say, I don't really care about what happened in Brighton because I wasn't invited. So on to the next bit of news, please. We needed a break from you then as well. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had a separate meeting and decided, yeah, that's not a bad lapping. It does appear that way, yeah. Okay, so moving on. The Party Poker Millions event was also taking place while we were on break. We saw some absolutely mammoth prize pools, which Steve O'Dwyer managed to take more than his fair share of. He had an incredible week. He didn't take down one of the high rollers. He took down both of the high rollers. The £25,000 buy-in event, that netted him £450,000. And the 10k buy-in event saw him net £314,000. So £764,000 is not a bad week. Congratulations to Steve O'Dwyer there. Yeah, pretty sick stuff there from Steve. The Irish have semi-claimed him over the years as a plastic paddy. I'm not sure they are genuine claims. I think it was more important that he had an Irish passport at one point. But it's got to be said, he is certainly one of the game's top players. And actually, at least with him not being in the list of Irish players, that moves all the rest of us up one spot. So <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. All eyes, of course, were on the 5,000 buy-in main event. The final table had some of the world's best fighting for the first prize of £1 million. Shout out especially to this week's guest, Tom Hall. He had a heroic effort making fourth place in this event. In the end, Ioannis Angelou Constas managed to beat William Foxen heads up. The two chopped the remaining prize pool. Foxen got second place for £720,000 and £940,000 went to Ioannis. Congratulations to everyone making the final table. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to be in trouble if you leave it at that. 
Ah, did someone else have a good run? I don't know, did they? I think they did. Yeah, yeah. You know what the tilting thing is? I wanted to buy some action, but uh, he wouldn't let me. That's that's why, that's why I'm not mentioning him. He's too rich. <laughs> Go ahead, you give him the shout out. Yeah, no, of course, got to give a little mention there to Darrow Carney, who valiantly charged his way to the final table. He was rocking the short stack for about a day and a half. We talked about this in the earlier segments. Can't believe I'm talking about it again in this segment. But yeah, no, congrats to Darrow on his eighth place finish. Fantastic result. Also got to mention, you know, literally a day or two before recording this, Darrow completed his ninth Triple Crown online. So congrats to Darrow on that. Yeah, monumental effort. Congratulations to Darrow there. Finally, the World Series of Poker Europe is in full swing at time of recording. There are 13 million in guarantees and 10 bracelets up for grabs. The 1k buying a monster stack is in the money right now at time of recording, with players competing for their share of half a million guarantee. Four bracelets have been won so far. Congratulations to Ukrainian Mikhail Gucci. Apologies if I pronounced that wrong, my friend. He won the 1k table bounty for 60k. Han Tran won his second WSOP bracelet for the year in the 550 pot limit Omaha. Tamir Segal won 200k in the huge 550 euro buy-in Colossus. And Asi Moshi took down the 1650 buy-in 6 max for £82,000. Yeah, not a great effort by the UK or Irish, it's got to be said, at the WSOPE in Rosvedov. Yes, but I do believe there's a, a moxie of people heading out there over the next week or so. So we might see a few bracelets coming UK and Ireland words in the next, I don't know, few days. Fingers crossed for that main event in particular. I know a few people who are going out there. Got to say as well, great coverage by Shirley Ang, who works on all our Unibet events. She's a fantastic sideline reporter, blogger. She obviously works in the pool industry as well as the poker industry. She runs tournaments in that world as well. Her coverage is second to none. Check it out on Poker News. One final thing to mention, one final plug. We talked about the UK Tour in Brighton. The UK Tour is coming to Manchester in December. Now, there are satellites on Saturdays. €100 is the buy-in for the satellite. If you win it, you'll get a €500 package. £220 will be your buy-in and the rest of it's cash. So, if you feel like joining us in Manchester, there are 100 euro satellites on Saturdays, and of course, sub qualifiers of 100 euro is a little bit too much for you. Can I come to this one? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks a million. I can come to Manchester. Brilliant. Not Brighton. Brighton's too nice for me. Yeah, yeah. Nice seaside town like Brighton. No, you can you can stay home for this one, Dave. We'll bring you to Manchester. Sound. <laughs> Fine. You're not fucking invited. No, no, no. I really, I take it back. I love, I, there's no airport. I prefer to spend three hours on the security queue in the Manchester airport. I take it back. <laughs> one last plug, one last plug. We are, of course, in Dublin very, very soon. The Unibet Open is heading to the Emerald Isle for the first time in a lot of years. I cannot wait. I'm going to be in Dublin for a week playing cards with the Unibet Ambassadors. What could be better? Oh, that's right. They put a free bar on uh, two nights of the week as well. So that's pretty good too. Oh my God. Uh, the last time they did free bars at Irish events, uh, the, these bars were actually emptied out by about 9.30. So if you are going to attend any of these welcome drinks or free bars, get there on time for God's sake. Uh, if you're interested in coming, you can win a 2,000 euro package on Sundays in the 250 Sunday final. 
Of course, there's always some satellites into the 250 final if you would like to get in a little bit cheaper. Who doesn't? There's also seat-only satellites on Wednesdays, 50 euro rebuy, which are particularly helpful if you are in Ireland and don't need the hotel. So good luck if you get on the satellite grind, everybody. Great stuff, Ian. Well, thank you very much for that comprehensive news report. We'll chat to you next week. Sounds good. Take care, man. Take care. For our strategy segment this week, I want to take a look at a hand Dara played, actually, at the recent Dusk Till Dawn Millions. It was a hand from around the bubble, so lots of ICM, as we like to challenge Dara with lots of ICM spots. It's always a a particular niche of his that we can all learn from. Dara, maybe you want to give a little bit of context to the hand and when it came about? Sure, yeah. We were a few off the bubble, and obviously a lot of people were getting paid, so that makes the ICM even bigger. I was probably the second or third biggest stack at the table, but there was a very dominant chip leader who was using his stack very well to accumulate chips. He was opening a lot of pots. He was putting a lot of pressure on people. And for the most part, the table was playing pretty passively against him because of that. So it folds around to me in the cutoff and I looked down at A7 of diamonds. I decided to open for a min raise. I was playing 65 big blinds at this stage. So the stack depth, it would, it would normally be a standard open. It's a little bit less of a good open with the ICM pressure that I could be under because the big blind is the big stack in this case. And I expect him to defend pretty much 100%. But I did have one additional piece of information. I knew for a fact that the recreational player on the button was folding. He basically always telegraphed when he folded. He'd look at his cards and he'd pick them up, more or less ready to throw them forward. So functionally, in my mind, I was on the button. So I open and the big blind does defend as expected. Yeah, so you made the point yourself there, but I'm always thinking to myself, well, if he three bets me, it puts me in a wonky spot. Maybe I could defend against small three bets with this hand because it can flop kind of nut and nut draw type of holdings. But at the same time, it's a weak ace. Okay, it's suitedness is nice. It could be potentially a, a wonky enough spot. But again, as you say, if he just calls and you are playing really deep here, there's a lot of situations where you're not playing for stacks or he doesn't manipulate the pot in such a way that you end up playing for stacks. So I guess that makes the open pretty reasonable. Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't think it's a slam dunk open by any means, but I did feel, I mean, he was playing very aggressively, but he wasn't mental aggressive. He wasn't taking every spot. So there would be some hands he would fold in the big blind anyway, like, like he's not necessarily going to defend 6-2 off. And I don't think he's necessarily going to go mental post-flop either. So it still felt like a profitable open. Yeah, I agree with that. You're not really one of the stacks he can put all that pressure on. He's more looking for the guys with 25 to 40 bigs to leverage them. Anyway, to the hand itself, flop comes down, ace-x, jack-x, and the three of diamonds, giving you backdoor enough flush draw, top pair obviously as well. But it is a strange situation that already presents itself to you because normally this would be a kind of a a seabed if checked situation. However, I think you're about to tell us it's going to be a bit different. Yeah, I mean, normally with ICM not being a factor, this is an amazing board for me because, you know, my range is much stronger. I have all the strong aces. I have all the sets on this board. My opponent almost certainly doesn't have aces or jacks, probably not ace-jack, ace-king, ace-queen either. So I have a huge range advantage on this board. And in fact, uh, when I put it into a solver, the solver said that my EV is four times his EV on this board. So this is almost as good as boards get. When those situations arise, it becomes an auto-see bet. You can bet pretty much 100% of your range just because you have such a strong range advantage. But the ICM being a factor, I knew uh, changed matters considerably. 
Yeah, and I think already this was an interesting spot. I remember you sending it to me and uh, I actually got a lot of the answers right for a change, but I think that's because I, like yourself, Dara, have specialized in satellite strategy over the years and it presents sort of extreme ICM situations a lot when doing that. So my instinct was very much like yours and I thought checkback was good. But before we go further in the hand, you did run this hand by a lot of very, very top class players and it was interesting to see how many of them wouldn't have done what you know we know to be a sort of a correct line. Yeah, I mean, the first top class player I spoke to about this hand was that night in the hotel. I uh, I was I was hanging out with Dan Wilson, and I brought the hand up. And Dan's initial reaction was, "Well, this is an auto sea bet. You should be just betting sea betting one hundred percent." But as we talked through the hand, he basically changed his opinion. When I put it up on Share My Pair and shared it on Twitter, again, some very strong players, including Patrick Leonard Pads, weighed in and said they also thought that it was an auto sea bet, which was why I put it through the solvers then, because I started thinking, well, in my mind, I was pretty sure I was supposed to check a lot of hands, and this hand seemed like a good one to do it with you know a weakish ace with some back doors which allows me to call a lot of turns and possibly get a really sky strong hand on the river if it comes running diamonds but certainly the contrary opinion out there that this was an auto sea bet so so i felt it was worth running it through the solvers yeah and i remember you sending me the very specific question of what part of our range or what percentage of our range should we be firing a c-bet here and i actually said to you zero percent i think because all the value in this hand is in using the value portion of our range to catch bluffs out basically it's a bluff inducing line that we have to take almost because we don't want to bet any of our weaker hands we really don't want to bluff in this scenario it's, it's a bad situation for us to bluff in given the icm we therefore have to put all of our value range into the checkback range to balance things out yeah, I think that's more or less the key to this flop spot. Because of ICM, we can't bluff very much. So if we start betting our really strong hands, then our check behind range just becomes hands that can't face any pressure at all. So we actually need to keep all of our strong hands in the check behind range to protect all the weaker hands. So even though we would love to bet pocket aces or pocket jacks or pocket threes on this flop or ace jack, we simply can't. Because if we start doing that and start betting our stronger hands, then when we check, our opponent can just overbet a later street and we pretty much have to fold all of our range. So, as predicted now from what we've spoken about, it goes check, check. I would expect to get a lead out from him on a lot of turns. Now, the turn comes a jack of spades. Quite an interesting card, pairing the second pair. Definitely a holding that you could have having checked back, but also, you know, you might be there with a weak ace like you do, and this is not a card you, you like seeing. Maybe you can't take the heat now over a couple of streets, but he does check to you, which presents you with, I think, a much easier decision this time to check back. Yeah, I think this is this is a hundred percent check back. In my mind, this wasn't a decision. I wasn't sure in game that I was supposed to check behind a hundred percent of the time on the flop. I thought I should probably be betting some hands, but not this hand. Therefore, I thought, well, if I'm betting some of my stronger hands, then the jack really is a bad turn card for me because. I would bet some of my jack X for equity denial on the flop. The fact that it's the jack of spades is kind of significant too, because I would presumably, if I was betting some strong hands for value on the flop, I would also be betting some backdoor type hands, something like the king queen of spades. So given the fact that I would often have bet those in practice on the flop, once the second spade rolls off, I don't really have too many flush draws now. My opponent still can have flush draws. I mean, his range is super wide, so it's still kind of unlikely that he has a jack or a spade flush draw, but he can certainly think about representing them and most of my range really can't stand the heat of a check raise so for that reason it seemed like a fairly clear check absolutely now a lot of people listening to this one might be going okay this is quite interesting so far but there must be something good coming well the river brings the four of spades completing the backdoor flush 
and our opponent does what, Dara? Uh, he bets 2.2 times pot, which I had a feeling this was coming because <laughs> as I checked behind on the turn, I thought I'm kind of capping my range here because if I had any super strong hand like trips or a house, I would be betting obviously to build the pot. So I've more or less told him I don't have a super strong hand and therefore he can target me on the river with an overbet. So I wasn't too surprised when he did that. At this stage, we were on a shot clock as well, and we had a limited number of time bank cards. So once you went past 30 seconds, you had to throw in one of your time banks. But I'd anticipated that this was coming, and I'd anticipated that on this type of river, I was going to have to call, because in my mind, I didn't actually have too many stronger hands now left in my range, given that I would have bet my super strong hands on, on the turn at least. So therefore, having the ace, I was well off my range. I mean, I can't have the flush, as I said, for the reasons I gave on the turn. I can't have the jack. I can't have any other type of house. So this is more or less as good as it gets in terms of my hands. So despite the fact that it's a big bet and you never like calling, you know, a 2.2 times pot bet with a hand this week, I was pretty sure it was a clear call. Yeah, and it does feel to me like, as you said, you've played the hand to bluff catch, basically. That's sort of part and parcel of the line you've taken the whole way through. Now, it is an ugly run out and it is certainly possible that you've been overtaken. But at the same time, if you're going to stick to your guns on this, even when facing a 2.2x, which I guess ultimately isn't going to put your stack at risk, which is the good news. If he ships it all in, I think you have a very murky spot and it definitely becomes questionable whether you can make a call or not. Hopefully, the very, very strong part of your range protects you there, like that you might have played aces or ace-jack this way. But having said that, it, it, it feels to me like this is a spot now where if he bets anything less like if he bets like pot or one and a half pot it's just a slam dunk call he has actually found quite a nice sizing to make it a little bit tricky yeah for sure and I, I, I think like when I spoke about this hand with Dan Wilson he pointed out that like a lot of my hands are like sevens eights nines and they really can't call so they're probably the hands that he was specifically targeting and I would have had to fold those hands when I did call I initially thought I'd lost because he kind of turned over his hand triumphantly <laughs> and he, he was at the far side of the table and he had king of spades eight of clubs but I just saw two black cards and I thought it was king of spades eight of spades so so I was quite surprised that the pot was actually pushed towards me um, it's a good job you turned the hand over <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I have made the mistake of mucking in those spots before so now I always turn over my hand but yeah I was genuinely curious about the hand afterwards and that's why I spoke to so many people about it and then there was such a disparity of opinion among strong players about how the hand should have been played that I decided I should run it to the solvers and the results were very striking because of ICM the entire post-flop strategy changes completely if ICM wasn't a factor on the flop our opponent has absolutely no lead he's supposed to check 100% and we're actually supposed to bet 100% when ICM is a factor that absolutely flips around and now our opponent is supposed to start leading 60% of the time including incidentally with this hand and when he does check, which he's supposed to do 40% of the time, we have literally no bets. We're supposed to check behind 100%. Yeah, it's a really interesting, Hannah. And the very fact that with the ICM implications of being almost on the bubble flips it around so much, I think it becomes very noteworthy for people and a really good, useful hand for people to think about. And, and maybe they'll be faced with similar situations in the near future. And they can use this as a reference point because I think it is a fascinating spot when you have an overall strategy that has to ultimately get turned inside out because of bubble pressure or satellite strategy pressure or whatever it happens to be. 
Yeah, it's worth noting as well that it's only recently the solvers have advanced to the point where they can assess the ICM of post-flop situations. For as long as there have been solvers around, we've been able to solve pre-flop ICM, but post-flop hasn't been solved until fairly recently uh, that functionality has been added to solvers like PO. It's, it's refreshing in a sense now because we can look at these spots and get some clarity, whereas in the old days, there was always a debate about how much we had to factor ICM in. Um, now we can sort of get absolute certainty to the degree to which the strategy changes. Well, for that hand, thank you very much, Dara. And of course, as we chatted with Tom earlier on in the show, you made the deep run, you made it to the final table, you pretty much played the short stack for, I don't know, a day, day and a half. But back at the time around the bubble, you had the 65 bigs, you were rocking pretty healthily. And uh, yeah, I guess the line you took in this hand perhaps prevented disaster because I could certainly imagine situations where if you had C-bet that flop and maybe he goes for a bullish check raise, he could have put you under pressure and maybe made you put in half your stack before folding the river. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people tend to be very results oriented and you, you kind of have to avoid that. And often people focus on situations where they had the best hand on the flop and they allow their opponent to outdraw them by the river, which is obviously always a tragedy when it happens, but doesn't necessarily mean that you played the hand wrong. Sometimes by not trying out the seabed on the flop, you give them rope to bluff later and you actually end up winning much more than you would. I mean, if this had been a normal non-ICM hand, it would have been the most dull hand ever. I would have seen better. My opponent would have folded it and I would have won three and a half big blinds. As it was, I basically won a 15 big blind pot, which was pretty significant at that point. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Dara. Thank you. We're joined now by a breakout star in the world of televised poker. He is a high-stakes cash game beast who is not too shabby at tournaments either with almost 4 million in live tournament winnings. He is also a poker coach and the founder of the Solve for Why Academy. He is, of course, Matt Berkey. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hi, Matt. Congrats on your uh, deep run. Oh, thank you very much, yeah. Uh, oh, you're just making me have to cut out stuff. For people keep congratulating <laughs> Dara every time. It's just, these interviews are going to go on forever. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Somebody's got to stroke the ego every now and again, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, it is unusual for Dara and I to interview someone neither of us has ever met before, but that is true in this instance. Although I will say that I feel like I know you, such has been your presence on my TV screen in the last few years. And also having read your My Poker Story submission to Maria Konnikova's recent Platinum Pass competition, can I start off there, if that's okay, and ask you the question, how easy or hard was it for you to write about your childhood? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it was actually really easy. I started that blog maybe two and a half years ago, uh, maybe closer to three, right after my mom and my grandma passed. And it's been a thorn in my side. I really, really want to finish it. The submission that I put in for the Platinum Pass was the first of, I think I made like eight entries. And it took me up to college. But I really want to be able to kind of take a step back and dedicate a reasonable amount of time so that I can get caught up probably like another eight to 10 blog posts away from getting the current date. There's definitely some meat on the bone. I just I can't seem to find the creative time to do it, which is really frustrating from like my standpoint of, of where my interests lie, I guess. I was familiar a bit of your backstory from your appearance on Thinking Poker with my friend Andrew. Um, and I was fascinated by the fact that you clearly come from a fairly different upbringing than most of the typical American poker players of your echelon, to put it like that. It's something which resonated with me pretty strongly too, because I had a fairly miserable childhood, impoverished as well. Beyond a certain point in my life, I actually thought that that might be the best type of childhood because it engenders a certain resilience in me as an adult. Do you feel the fact that you sort of had those early traumatic experiences did in any way help you as a poker player? Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't suggest people, you know, mistreat their children or 
<laughs> or like, you know, suffer through some sort of uh, negativity. But the thing is, is that everything's a spectrum. We're all going through some sort of traumatic experiences, no matter how good you have it or how poor the circumstances. And I really do believe that the people who suffer the most in the world are the ones who just like greatly lack any sort of perspective outside of their own little bubble. I think empathy is a cultivated trait and one that's really necessary in order to be a well-rounded individual to the point where like, if I were to ever have children, I obviously want the best for them and I want them to have all the best things. And it's difficult not to spoil them, especially coming from a more impoverished background like I have. But I think I would be really conscientious about demonstrating like how the rest of the world lives and how privileged and fortunate they would be. I've spoken a lot about this with my friends and I just think like it's really critical to get that level of like exposure to good people who are in bad spots. So doing charity work with homeless shelters, uh, food banks, old folks homes, whatever, just like basically developing some level of concern and respect for your fellow man, despite what walk of life they come from, to me is like one of the biggest life skill sets that anybody can develop at a young age. That's really nicely put, Matt. Re reading your story, and, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, and, uh, and I'm far from a literary critic, but I, I did want to ask you something that really struck me at the time. The story you wrote was obviously about some really traumatic stuff. It spoke to your resilience, as Dara mentioned, and your determination. But something in the writing was missing for me, and I couldn't tell if it was conscious decision on your part or maybe something more unconscious. It was written in a somewhat detached way, uh, despite at times heartbreaking events being described. You rarely included how they made you feel. The impact of that had for me almost a, a Brett Easton Ellis effect of maybe placing us in the story, seeing it through your eyes, but not necessarily feeling it through your inner world. Was it intentional? Yeah, I would say so, largely because it was pretty reflective of how I felt in the sense that the only emotion that like really resonated with me consistently throughout was fear and worry hmm. uh, and not for my own well-being. You know, it was, it was more for like my mother's and my sister's. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a certain effect where when you're forced to grow up quickly and be more responsible than your age would dictate, there's a certain hardening impact that takes place and a certain callus that's formed where you don't find a super sensitivity to small things. You know, when you have serious concerns of your mom being intertwined with street drugs and street violence and all the things that go along with those things, you know, it, it makes smaller problems very shrug worthy, I guess. Uh, poker players who can block out emotion often excel, so it could be argued that that's a very good trait to have as a poker player, but not necessarily a great trait as a human being, although often a necessary one, obviously, particularly if you're going through fairly traumatic times. How do you look at that trade-off between being able to block out emotion but not wanting to be emotionless? It's difficult. It's difficult because as a younger person, I was very much, I don't want to say so far as to saying that I was manic, but I very much swung in the pendulum. So everything was really extreme. And the irony was that the real extreme things that should impact people, if they were only exposed to it every once in a while, I was callous to. <laughs> I would literally cry if my baseball game would get rained out. Like it was that extreme. <laughs> but it was obviously a level of deflection where you're bottling up a lot of these emotions due to the trauma and, and other experiences that you're going through. And they're just like being circumvented to areas that you feel are the most impactful things in the world. As an adult, I've done a lot of conscious... I don't know if study is the right word, but I guess thinking about how this interplays throughout development. And, you know, I just recognize that we're all very flawed. So I try to take the best that I can from a lot of different sources, things like stoicism. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, everybody has their shortcomings and developing a high EQ 
is a really difficult path to head down, but I think it's a really important one. And having an IEQ doesn't necessarily mean that you are overly emotional. It means that you have a really good grasp and comprehension of your emotions. So I think I'm a little lucky in that sense where my environmental experiences help shape it in one way. And then my ability to logic and reason and think a little bit more linearly kind of helps remove it where necessary. So do you feel, to kind of go back to Dara's question, like you can switch it on and off when you're at the poker table, it's very useful to just be sort of a man of pure logic. But then, of course, when you go home, you want to kind of experience the full array of emotions. I mean, it's weird because like the older you get, the less exciting the world is as a whole. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like a difficult thing to comprehend, right? It's like we feel it in poker too. Our biggest wins never feel as good as our biggest losses hurt. And yeah, just like the concept of fun really shifts its narrative as you get into your 30s and you know beyond i'm sure like in my 20s there's a lot of things that were exciting and activity really really drove me and none of that has changed but my surroundings have greatly changed i don't just have the ability to pick up the phone and call six of my friends and go get a flag football game going so you know i I guess like a lot more of it becomes internalized you start to align value with emotions So you kind of like restrict the things that you're emotional for, for the areas where you find the most value, be it in uh, your, your study, your consciousness, your relationships, whatever the case may be. But, you know, just like anything else that certainly requires a level of work and thoughtfulness that goes beyond some default setting where you can just like wake up and feel. Yeah, I guess we've drifted into the world of mindset and I guess that can be applied to poker, which brings me neatly to the next question I have here, which is that in May of last year, you were interviewed by Dr. Trisha Cardner for Poker News, a really nice interview. And she asked you about the mindset leaks of fellow high rollers, to which you answered, and I quote you here, I think the common leak is succumbing to emotional responses during problem solving. So many people take action based upon what they want or hope to have happen, only later to justify that action through flawed logic. Can you unpack that for us? As my guess is most average players would be very familiar with that leak and maybe falsely assume that elite players are somewhat impervious to it. Yeah, so I think the big difference between elite players and the average player is the level of self-trust and arrogance that comes with being elite at a game. And the problem is, is that when you reach a certain level of success through that direct path of study, linear processing, developing a strategy or whatever the case may be, Everything is fine and emotionless when things go according to plan. But the issue is that no matter what strategy you adhere to, GTO or otherwise, there are major blind spots that you don't know what you don't know. And when those blind spots present themselves in game and you're just naturally exploited by somebody who is falling down the proper counter strategy, whether it's benotes to them or not, what happens is the lack of knowledge then triggers an emotional response. And nobody is impervious to this. No matter how hard you train to get out of it, no matter how well dialed into your mindset you are, when you feel like you've done everything correct and you see a negative feedback loop (laughs) and you like lack the ability to objectively look at it and just say like, oh, like maybe my side was flawed here or maybe he played perfectly. It's really easy to shift the blame to the other person and say like, oh, he's an idiot for doing what he did and just got (laughs) lucky. And like, that's really the difference, right? Like luck is defined in the mid to low tiers as my hand got cracked by a worse hand kind of thing, right? But when you're talking about the upper echelon, luck is actually defined by people basically clicking the right button at the right time. So it's stumbling into 
a counter strategy that works in spite of a lack of knowledge to do so. And for really intelligent people, that concept is difficult to distill down, internalize and recognize that like it's out of our control. And I think that's why like GTO itself has been such a popular wave because it kind of presents a black and white world where there are answers and there are flaws and we get to control the answers. When the reality is there are so many variables and so much variance in this game that even if we do get to control our decisions, which are fundamentally flawed, the response is still going to be completely and utterly out of our hands. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think Jen Shahadi talked about that when she was on the show. There, there is a sort of a need for humans for certainty over knowledge. They just like the idea that they have something is clearly right in a certain situation, even if that's only a very small subset of what they actually should be looking at. Uh, but speaking of high rollers, you very famously had all of yourself in the 300k high roller bowl in 2016 for what I assume was a big piece of your bankroll fortunately you came fifth for 1.1 million what made you decide to take such a big risk uh, i didn't have all myself i had 20 percent, but at the time i was only worth like 300,000. okay so okay. it was still a big chunk uh it was just you know it was something that i've just always had a lot of like faith in myself and my ability to perform when my back's against the wall i was given the opportunity to play the event with enough notice where I felt like I could put in a lot of work and do a lot of study. And I had this concept for the idea of dead money where I just thought it would be really interesting to people who are intrigued by this community to kind of peel back the curtain and demonstrate just how much work it actually is, even for one simple event. And then also like how large the rewards can possibly be. So putting 60K into that event when I'm only worth 300 is pretty insane from a, a responsible bankroll management mm. standpoint. <laughs> But it's a lot more reasonable when you start to take into consideration a lot of the other factors. First of all, that's the only 300K I'm going to play, at least in that year's time, if not ever. Secondly, I have a full backing deal playing at the time 300, 600, 1200, no limit. Uh, the game's gotten a little bit smaller since then. But you know, I have the ability to earn a lot of money at no risk to my own bankroll otherwise. And the other 80% is also on that stake. So like I'm factoring in a small free roll to the piece that I'm buying. So it's a big risk at the time, but it, there isn't a big difference between a quarter million and 300K as far as functional living goes. And I'm going to have the ability to earn money otherwise. So, you know, I, I just felt like it was a situation where I could put myself in a really volatile yet profitable scenario and kind of just see what I'm made of from a preparation standpoint. So am I right in saying the other 80%, the other 240K was on your stake? So in effect, that was sort of your money too, assuming that you were going to be profitable and get out eventually if you were to bury yourself in one fell swoop. Yeah, that's correct. But I mean, to give you an idea, <laughs> to, to give you an idea by comparison, like the average swing that I was going through would be like somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 400,000 per session. Wow. Uh, with the stakes that I was playing at the time. So, you know, it's like a, it was like a buy-in. I, yeah, I'm finding it hard to sort of think in those terms. That's a, a pretty high wire risk in my mind. But I guess, you know, even if you do view it as some sort of a high wire risk as well, it is one that paid off. But it's fair to say there are other occasions in your history I've read about where you did go broke despite your obvious abilities on the felt. Some people might see that as a fundamentally self-destructive streak or instinct would they be right or was there always some rationale like the one you just described there behind selective gambles of that nature maybe on a once a year basis i think that like in the moment i was just doing what i thought was best given the uh given the feedback loop that i had which was when i played i won at a fair rate you have to remember how much things have changed since 2003 
the specific times that I went broke were 2007, 2009, and 2012. And there was really no, there was nobody like cutting a path for us and uh, demonstrating the proper way to find investment strategies within the game of poker, like how to treat it like a business. I was in my 20s and didn't know anything. I just knew that like taking on risk at that age wasn't that big of a deal because I was young and versatile and had a background with a degree that if I fell totally on my face, I would have outs. So for me, it was just always like the first 10 years I played or so, I started in 2003, at least the first five years, just being the smartest guy in the room was going to yield you massive amounts of money. So I felt like I was usually in that position in games that I was playing. So, you know, I was underrolled for the first decade of my career in everything that I did. So of course, my risk of ruin was through the roof. The first two times I went broke wasn't off of much of a bankroll. It was off of like a 50K roll and a 30K roll. And, you know, that's just going to happen. Um, the third time I went broke was the, the time that I think was a mistake. But again, it was because I was getting a little older and a little wiser, but was still left wondering what the hell I'm supposed to do. I came into money after I got 43rd in the main event in 2010 for 200K. And I suddenly had a 300K bankroll when my previous high was like 50. And I didn't even like start playing that much bigger. I was a 10-20 regular already. I was pretty much just playing it more consistently. But I had all this liquidity now, and I didn't understand necessarily the need for a massive role to withstand these stakes because I had played 1020 before on like a 50K role. So I went on a bit of a downswing over the next year and a half, not too substantial, but I went on one. And in the midst of that, I was staking three people who also were not winning. So effectively, like where I just suffered like a, a 50K swing, which playing 10, 20, 40 isn't that big of a deal. It's like 10 buy-ins. My horses collectively lost like 300K. Yeah. And now suddenly I'm broke again. And it's like, I thought I was doing the responsible thing by investing in something that I was intelligent in and could, could kind of mitigate the risk and, and see a nice return. But the reality is, is that like I was just gambling because I wasn't doing all the things that allowed me personally to win. As a player, you're probably best known for your anti-GTO approach and your all around creativity, particularly in the live arena. This attitude has apparently seen you develop a, a sort of needling rivalry or feud, I don't know what you want to call it, with uh, GTO advocates, Doug Polk. Could you tell us about this feud or whatever? And do you think it's because you fundamentally see the game differently from Doug? Or do you think that there, there are other triggers, like maybe different backgrounds? I personally have no issues with Doug whatsoever. I think that whatever back and forth developed is because he was in a clickbait world where he was looking for low-hanging fruit. Like, the majority of our back and forth had nothing to do with strategy. Though, I mean, like he openly flamed me saying that I was a bad reg or whatever the case may be, but like that was just kind of his shtick. We're going to do similar things to sell this podcast episode. So. And the thing is, like, I, don't, <laughs> I honestly don't care. Like, I thought it was fun to some degree. I was annoyed, obviously, because like, nobody wants to be questioned by their peers. And I think like it wasn't even the questioning of it. The bothersome thing to me was, I guess, that there are so few of us that have this platform to create some bullshitty drama where you're dividing the community and forcing them to choose a side when the reality is that there is no side. And like I'm not anti-GTO. I think that game theory itself is the only path to studying anything as nuanced as poker. The difference lies in the styles that come from that study. And I very much believe that 
balance is not a spectrum. Equilibrium is an absolute point. And there's no such thing as getting closer to equilibrium. Like you are just, even if you're getting quote unquote closer to equilibrium, you're still on the exploitative spectrum. So we're all, we're all fighting the same fight. We're all just trying to figure out which part of the exploitative spectrum is most profitable for the current environment, right? And the fact of the matter is, like, Doug himself plays incredibly exploitative. Uh, if you watch him on TV, like, he got torched for the better part of 18 months, and most of it was over-bluffing and was not in the vein of balance. But the whole point that I'm, I'm trying to make from this is that, like, I love the idea of turning poker into WWE in some fun capacities. And developing healthy rivalries, I think, is great. But developing them around the, the context of strategy or talent is where I think it becomes problematic because when we're both coaches in the industry and he basically frames it such that I don't provide any value to my students because, you know, if you don't have a Berkey in the game, then the game isn't worth playing. That kind of tone. I think that we do the entire community a massive disservice. I think like it parallels to the nutrition community. When a vegan just absolutely throws the work of an omnivore scientist under the bus, trying to poke holes at it all in order to further their own narrative, they're doing everybody a disservice because the fact of the matter is both schools of thought are significantly improved upon the current school of thought, which is the standard American diet, right? And <laughs> the same obviously applies to poker strategy. It's like we're fighting the same fight. We're both developing new content that is very beneficial to the community at large. But because you have a louder microphone and a bigger platform, I'm kind of like forced to defend myself and prove my worth now. Where, you know, I think anybody who like has experience with me kind of understands that my credentials speak for themselves and I'm not just haphazardly saying things for the sake of it. Well, to move on to your credentials in that capacity and, and coaching, as you brought up yourself, I mentioned at the top your Solve for Why Academy, a live poker-focused training site that I think has been up and running for several years now. Can you tell our listeners why Solve for Why? Sure. So this is kind of a passion project born into a real business. I've just always learned differently. I've always been very abstract. I have a very zoomed out, broad scope analysis of things. I think I'm a lot more of an abstract thinker than a linear thinker, despite having a background in, in computer science and math. And I think that there are a lot of people who fall into this realm in the poker community. More importantly, I think that that's true of the world as a whole when talking about any issues. But the problem is, is that only the linear thinkers have really held the stage as far as problem solving goes. And I see a big issue in this, in the sense that for very long periods of time, uh, for man to evolve and basically survive, we needed to problem solve, but we needed to do so very quickly with minimal resources. So the best approach was to identify what a problem was and then immediately figure out what the most viable solution was, regardless of how optimal it was, right? So it was just what and how. Nobody cared why the problem existed. It was just put a Band-Aid on it and let's move on, right? Mm. Well, well, worldwide, you can see the issue with that, right? When it comes to things like climate change and factory farming and all these other like major issues that are on the back end from trying to simply solve problems. The way I think this relates to poker is that it is a deeply nuanced game. It has more decision points than atoms in the universe. Like this is beyond our comprehension. And to haphazardly play it without considering those factors seems very problematic. And poker training up to this point was very much of that simplistic approach. What's the problem? How do we solve it? I don't feel like I could play jacks profitably under the gun. Okay, 
let's have you start doing this differently under the gun, start limping or start five Xing, right? Let's just find a quick viable solution that's going to allow you to simplify things. And what I noticed is that if you actually take a Y point of view instead, you solve a lot of these micro issues along the way. So if instead of saying like, what's the problem? How are we going to solve it? Instead say like, why does that problem exist? Why do you feel like you don't profit with jacks under the gun? From there, it's going to force a dissection of what your whole range is under the gun, what hands you do think you're playing profitably, what ones you aren't, and how that shapes out against defense ranges as a whole. Now I forced you to consider many, many other problems. I've made you analyze things from the defender's range. I've made you analyze things from your entire opening range, how you're going to be c-betting, board textures. All of this stuff has to be considered now to answer the simple question is why don't you play jacks profitably? And once you arrive at a conclusion, what's happened is you've probably truly fixed a lot of these other small problems along the way. So my big focus was just like getting to holistic solutions that would empower people to kind of head down an independent learning path and fend for themselves as they progressed. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I do quite a bit of coaching these days, but coaching was something I was very reluctant about initially. In fact, I, I only really got into it when myself, David, and, and Dara Davey were staking other players and we used to run coaching sessions. And as one of the stakers, I was expected to show up. But I always felt that like David had quite a bit of coaching experience and, and was a very good coach. And Dara was also very good. There was actually a joke within our group that my only contribution would be after Dara had said what he thought and David had said what he would thought. I would say, well, it's hard dependent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that sessions well <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I have gotten into coaching in the last few years and since I've committed to it more fully I've actually found that it's greatly improved my own game because it's solidified a lot of concepts in my head having to explain them and think about the game logically and communicating it in that sort of fashion do you feel your own game has any sort of similar benefits or other types of benefits other than just the value that you're providing to your customers Oh, absolutely. I think anybody who goes into the coaching or mentoring sphere is doing it for subtly selfish reasons. Sure, everybody wants to be a part of larger contributions and you know give back to the community that they're in or society as a whole. But beyond any sort of altruistic motives, there's the certain sense that this will keep me very, very sharp, right? And there's a certain sense that you'll dial into different spectrums in the game when you're constantly forced to vocalize your thought processes. So for me, it's like, I don't know that I'd be able to compete at these stakes as regularly as I do if I weren't in a situation where I was either doing what I'm doing already with the business and coaching others, or at least surrounded by peers and good friends that I could continually have think tank sessions with. Yeah, that's very interesting. So beyond playing and mentoring, what does the future hold for Matt Berkey? Do you have any burning ambitions you'd like to achieve over the next few years? Yeah, I don't have a particular timeline on it because I just don't really ever know how these things shake out. But in the short term, I really do want to finish that blog series. Uh, I think that <laughs> once it's completed, it actually will be a, a piece of work that like lives on its own. I want to eventually scale solve for why into something beyond poker i think it has applications in many many communities and trying to figure out the proper path to making it valuable to others is challenging but it's something that like i'm passionate about and i find enjoyable and ultimately i'd like to have some hand in developing a fundamental learning facility that exchanges teaching hours for activity so uh, i guess ultimately like what i see a need for are like community centers where 
the entire community is on board and all of the little leagues and the arts and the music and basically any after school activity you could imagine is all under one roof or is all governed by one body. And for kids, it costs them nothing other than their time. So as long as they're willing to put in, say, five hours of functional learning per week, then they'll get in return a season's worth of some sort of activity. What I mean by functional learning is like logic courses, problem solving courses, you know, even as micro as like understanding how compound interest works and mortgages and leasing versus buying cars. All of this stuff is so critical and it's just not being taught in schools. And what we end up with is a bunch of man children coming out of college with no idea what the next step is, but a lot of real world responsibility being thrust into their lap. That's a lovely idea, man. I have to say, I wish you all the best with that. I think the world would be a better place if you execute that one. Finally, before we go, in researching for this interview, I've heard and read a lot of your previous interviews. Almost all of those included an interesting and often hilarious story from the world of high stakes poker. Do you have an exclusive one for us that you've never shared before? Uh, I'm trying to think. Putting you on the spot, I know. I know. My memory is so bad whenever it's not like triggered by something. I, I started playing short deck a little bit more recently and we were playing a bit the other day, but like, this isn't even funny. This is just like super common in the game because it's difficult to understand. We've seen the best hand get folded a lot because of the forgetting that an ace also functions as a five. Oh, of course. Yeah. So like, there'll be like just a lot of all in situations where it's like ace king versus a pair and like the pair will make a set on both boards, but you know, ace king won't realize that on the second board it's six, seven, eight, nine. And they'll just like, you know, toss their hand in the muck. <laughs> or we yeah, you know, we assume it's we assume it's ace high because there aren't very many combinations of hands left, but they never table their hand. And then, you know, some period of time later it's like, hey, you fold a straight back there, just so you know. <laughs> you don't just say like, it in game. I mean you have you have to kind of like throw it back to them. And I like that because it does feel like short deck is the future at the moment. There's so much televised cash game poker being played in that format. So I can't wait for the first time I get to tell somebody that they folded the winning hand. Yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of fun and it's an emotional game because nobody knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> well, Matt, your poker story is certainly one of the most fascinating of any player on the circuit. Unfortunately, I can't root for you to win Maria's competition because I do also have a horse in that race. But what I can do <laughs> is sincerely thank you for sharing your story with our listeners today. Anytime. Thanks, Pat, and I can root for you in that race. Well, Tom admitted earlier to loving the greenery of Nottingham, loving Dara, and, well, just feeling the love everywhere, really. Playing us out this week is another gangster of love who certainly enjoyed the green. This is Steve Miller Band and The Joker. Some people call me the space cowboy Yeah Some call me the gangster of love Call me Maurice Cause I speak Of the pompatists of love People talk about me baby Say I'm doing you wrong Doing you wrong Well don't you worry baby Don't worry Cause I'm right here I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. I play my music in the sun. I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. I get my loving on the run.
Thanks again to Nick, Tom and Matt. We're back next week with German Beast Philip Gruesome and our dear friend Kat Arnsby. Until then, from Dara Ian and myself, good night and good luck. <laughs>